on vacation, but I was taking care of items that needed to be taken care of. As some of you know, that not only am I one of your pastors, but now, functionally speaking, I'm one of your missionaries into the military as a Navy chaplain. And so I received word this week, official orders, that I'll be shipping out soon in a couple of weeks. So while I'm gone for a couple of months, I trust the Lord to continue to do his great work amongst you and amongst us. The Lord that we serve is sovereign, is he not? And he loves us with a great love, and he's given us Christ, his one and only Savior, our one and only Savior. And so please continue to pray for me and my family, and pray for Pastor Ed and Pastor Corey and Pastor Vladimir. The Lord will continue to sustain them and sustain you. There's a Scottish theologian by the name of P.T. Forsyth, P.T. Forsyth, and he died in May of 1848. But before he died, he rightly said this, quote, the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. Let me read that again. The first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but to find its master. The question before you this morning is, who is your master? Here's a better question. Who is the master of your soul? Is it you? Are you the king of your own soul? Are you the queen of your own soul? That's a question that we need to answer this morning. So we're in Luke chapter 4, in the first 13 verses, and it's entitled, The Second Adam's Temptations. You'll see that in your bulletin. And the main point that I want to get across today for us is Jesus is the true Son of God. Jesus is the true Son of God. He is the greater Adam. And here's why. Because he perfectly obeyed God. He perfectly obeyed God. And that is critical to understand as Bible-believing Christians. If Jesus did not perfectly obey the Father's will, there is no salvation for us. There's no hope for us. There's no forgiveness for us. There's no love of God. And if we don't understand what God has done in Christ, in Christ's perfect obedience, then you will not worship him as you ought. You won't live for him as you should. The background of this in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, and so Jesus is coming back. He's returning from the Jordan, and we see that in the first verse of chapter 4. But as we read these 13 verses and we go through this text, you should hear echoes of something. You should hear echoes of Exodus. You should hear echoes of the wilderness wanderings by Israel. You'll see in this text that there's key language that's reminiscent of the Old Testament journey of Israel. Words like wilderness and 40 days and temptation and nothing to eat. What does that sound like? That should automatically draw our heart and our attention to the Exodus. Another consideration for us before we jump into this text is that in Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, I want to bring your attention to verse 23. And it says this, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And then from there, it says the son of this person, and the son of this person, and the son of this person, and it continues on. There's a family line, there's a lineage there. But then let me jump to verse 38 to save us time. The son of Enos the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So what verse 38 is saying is that Adam is known as the son of God. And there's a connection here between Jesus in verse 23 and Adam, the son of God, in verse 38. Obviously, if you've read Matthew's account, Matthew's gospel of the lineage. You'll see 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations. 
But this lineage is not exactly the same lineage as we see in Luke chapter 3. And there are several reasons for that. In Matthew's account, many scholars believe that the focus is a royal and physical line. But in Luke's account, the focus is a royal and legal line. But both agree that Jesus is the son of David, that Jesus comes from that Davidic line. So what are, what are we saying here? If you understand Matthew's account, it goes from Jesus all the way back to Abraham in Matthew's account. But in Luke's account, it starts with Jesus, and it goes way past David, it goes way past Abraham. It actually goes from Jesus all the way to who? Adam. And Adam is described as the son of God. So the question for us today is, who is the true son of God? Who is the true son of God? And when we look at this language of Adam, the son of God, biblically speaking, this is what it means, is that God in his kindness took the dust of the earth and he formed it and breathed into it life. And this being is the first man, Adam. In other words, God the creator created Adam, the first man or first human. Adam, the son of God, was created. But you cannot apply that same principle to Jesus. Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. He is not created. So when we say Jesus is the Son of God, that has two different contexts altogether. Again, the main point is that Jesus is the true Son of God because why? He perfectly obeyed the will of the Father. And we see this in the three temptations of the greater Adam. The greater Adam is Jesus. The greater Adam is Jesus, Jesus the Christ. So look with me in the first temptation in verse 3. Verse 3, the devil is speaking to Jesus, and the devil says this, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. The devil commands Jesus to take a stone and turn it into bread. And when we think about this at face value, it does make sense, because why Jesus is in the wilderness. He's been on a 40-day fast. He hasn't eaten, and the text is very clear that Jesus is hungry. And so what's wrong with this picture? Why is the devil tempting Jesus? Well, the devil's goal is this, is to tempt Jesus to sin. To tempt Jesus to sin nullifies and voids out the hope of salvation in the perfect, sinless one. That's the goal of the devil. Because if Jesus actually sins, he's no longer the perfect one. He's no longer the sinless one. He's no longer the Messiah. He's no longer the Christ. He's no longer the promised one that God promised in the Old Testament and is now here in the New Testament. He's no longer the perfect sacrifice for God's people. See, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrificial system is you would sacrifice an animal. But if the animal was a goat, per se, or a sheep, per se, this animal that had four legs and you offered as a sacrifice cannot have three legs, can't have broken bones, cannot be spotted. If a poor Israelite offered a dove because they couldn't offer a goat, a dove couldn't have half a wing and a broken leg and one broken eye or a missing eye and a broken beak. That dove had to be right. That sacrifice had to be right. That sacrifice had to be proper. In all of these Old Testament sacrifices, that entire sacrificial system pointed to the greater sacrifice, pointed to the perfect sacrifice, pointed to the sinless sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. So in order for you and for me to be forgiven by the holy, perfect God, someone has to step in as a substitute. And the substitute cannot be maimed and broken and defiled by sin. In order for you to be forgiven, we need one who is sinless, that is perfect, and that person is Jesus. So this is not really about hunger, even though Jesus was in the desert for 40 days and desperately hungry. 
This is not about hunger. This is really about a hunger for righteousness. This is, a, this is about obedience. This is all about obeying God. And so the devil says to Jesus in a very subtle way, let's assume you're the son of God. Then turn this stone into bread. Why? Because you're hungry, Jesus. You haven't eaten in 40 days, Jesus. Turn this stone and become, that it becomes bread and then eat. Satisfy your hunger. But obviously to do so is to sin against God. Look what Jesus says. He responds in verse 4. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. When we see that in the Bible, in the New Testament, it is written. That's technical language to start thinking Old Testament. Start thinking about what God is doing in the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, it is written. Jesus is about to quote something from the Old Testament. And in this context, he's, text, he's referring to Deuteronomy 8.3. Deuteronomy 8.3. And Deuteronomy 8.3, let me read that for us. And he humbled you, talking about God. God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But listen to this, church. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of who? The Lord. The Lord. In this context, Moses commands Israel, Hey, God has promised you land. He promised it to your forefathers. He's about to give you this land. So don't forget what you're called to do. You're called to obey God at his word. You're called to recall the statutes and the commands that God has given you. And so when you do that, you will live and multiply and possess the land. So Moses is reminding Israel that God has been very kind to you. Don't forget God when you go into the land of plenty. Don't forget him. And don't forget what God has done for you the last 40 years of your life. He has sustained you in a supernatural way. God has provided for you and he tested you. He tested your hearts to see if you would keep his word or his commandments. So Moses tells Israel that God humbled you. How did God humble the people of Israel in the Old Testament? He let them hunger. They couldn't provide for themselves. They, they thought they were independent. We know how that feels, right? Aren't we the land of the free and the home of the brave? We're trained to be independent in America. And many times that independence ruins your relationship with the Lord. So God humbles Israel. He lets them get hungry or be hungry. And these people cry out to God, and God hears the cries of his people, and God provides food. What does he provide for them? He provides one thing, is manna. Manna from where? Heaven. The Israelites couldn't go down the street to the local bakery and say, I'd like a loaf of manna. No, this is a special meal. This is a meal that comes from the Lord. God provided for Israel manna in a very special way that they had never experienced ever in their life before. And so if you remember the story, they ate the food, and then 24 to 48 hours later, what happens? They're hungry again. And what do they do? They complain. They complain to Moses. Moses, did you bring us out to the wilderness so that we would die? It would be better for us to go back to Egypt and eat the cheeseburgers of the Pharaoh. That is not in the translation. That's a Rolo <laughs> paraphrastic version. See? <laughs> so, Israel complains again about the food that they don't have. God provided for them, and they still complain. Aren't we like the people of Israel? God gives us blessing. We think it's not enough. We complain. And so they wanted food. God was gracious to them. 
God was merciful to them. God should have judged them, to be honest. And yet God provided for them and sustained them. You know, to be sustained physically is a wonderful blessing. God provides for our needs in many, many ways. But to be, stay, but to be sustained physically and spiritually by the word of God is an absolute miracle. It's an absolute miracle and blessing from God. And God sustains his people despite themselves. So what do we see in this first point? We see that in the Old Testament, Israel complained, they sinned against God with their hunger in the wilderness. But yet we see Jesus in the New Testament, who's also in the wilderness. He is absolutely hungry. He does not complain. He does not grumble. And so Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Son of God. I want to bring your attention to Exodus 4. Turn with me there to Exodus 4. We're going to turn to verse, verse 22. Exodus 4, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, so God wants Moses to go to Pharaoh, perform what God has instructed him to do. Then verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God looks at Israel as his firstborn son. The problem is Israel fails God at every opportunity. And to fail God is not good. It's sin. They're not the faithful son of God. But yet we see the faithful son of God in Jesus. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the son of God. When we think about this first point, and we think about this temptation of Jesus, right? It doesn't tempt us, right? Why? Because we're not Jesus. We don't have the power or authority to turn a stone into bread. We don't have that ability. So this type of temptation doesn't tempt us at all. But are we tempted anyways to do other things? Yes, we are. We are tempted to sin against our Savior in so many different ways. Are there times in your life where you have a great need, you need something, you've prayed to the Lord, and the Lord hears your cries, the Lord hears your prayers, but yet the Lord hasn't answered your prayer. And so, what do we do usually? We usually take the matters into our own hands, do we not? We force God's hand. We, we are proactive Americans, right? We've got to take the first step. So since God is not hearing our prayer and God doesn't want to answer our prayer, so to speak, we're just going to go ahead and do what we think is good and right. We're unwilling to be patient. We go beyond God's word. We make a decision and then we find out 24 to 48 hours later that that decision was a bad decision and now we're in a bad, desperate situation, and we ask God, God, please pull me out of this situation. We want God to bless us after we make the decision, instead of waiting upon God. We don't want to wait upon God. We take matters into our own hands. Jesus, what does he do? He quotes the word of God. He's dependent upon God. He's resolved to obey God. The resolution for all our situations, the resolutions for all our temptations is always a reliance upon God's word. It's not your feelings. It's not your likes. It's not your opinions. It's not our emotions. It's not our preferences. The resolution is always a reliance upon God's word. Matthew 6, 25 says this, Therefore, I tell you, Jesus is talking to his disciples, by the way. 
Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And what's the obvious answer? Yes, we are more valuable than these birds that God provides for. You don't see these birds complaining. You don't see these birds stressed up. You don't see these birds discouraged. God provides for these birds of the air, and yet you are more valuable than these birds. Do you trust God to provide, or do you believe that you have to take the matters into your own hands? I'm not saying that we should not work. If you look at Proverbs chapter 10, the Bible's very clear that there's wise people and that there are foolish people. That there are righteous people and that there's unrighteous people. There are those who work with their hands and those who are lazy. I've said this several times. It's not a sin to be poor. But if the reason that you're poor is because you're lazy, laziness is a sin. God has called you to work. God has not called you to take advantage of the government and squeeze every dime you can and depend upon them. God has called you to work. You don't believe me? Well, the Word of God says, before Genesis chapter 3 happened, God took Adam and placed him into where? The Garden of Eden to work the ground. But after Genesis 3, after Adam sinned, God doesn't say, be lazy. He said, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow, Adam. There was work before the fall, now there's work after the fall, but the work after the fall is now frustrating work. That's why you're going to work by the sweat of your brow, Adam. God has called us to work. So it's not a sin to be poor, but it is sinful to be lazy. God provides, dear Christian. God provides. If you are his and he is yours, he will provide for you. He knows you. He loves you. He saved you. He will provide for you. And when Jesus was tempted, listen, this is real temptation by a real person who tempted Jesus, the devil. And what does Jesus do? Jesus did not give in to sin. He obeyed God perfectly. And we say as God's people, all glory to Jesus because there are salvation consequences involved if he sins. All glory to Jesus. Second temptation, verse 5, read with me. We hear the devil speak again, Luke 4, verse 5. And the devil took him, Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So somehow, some way, the devil takes Jesus and leads him up to a high place. Many translations say up to a high mountain. And the devil presents to Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, all the nations of the world. In other words, the devil showed Jesus the sphere and the domain of his power. And the Bible describes the devil as the God of this world who has blinded the minds of who? Unbelievers. Unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So the devil is real. The devil does have real power. But the power he has and the authority he has is limited and it's on a time frame. The devil is a false god. He thinks he rules this world, but he does not. The Bible also describes the Bible as crafty or shrewd. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. We understand the meaning of being crafty or shrewd. But the Bible also describes the devil in John chapter 8 as a murderer and a liar. 
The devil is a professional liar. And the devil is so arrogant and he's so prideful that he believes his own lies. He tells Jesus lies about himself. That God has given the devil authority and power. And that this authority and power can be given, these kingdoms can be given to Jesus at a cost. The cost is Jesus has to bow the knee to the devil. What does Jesus say? Or I should say, what does the devil say? The devil says this, I have the authority to give it to you, Jesus. All this authority and all this honor will be yours. Just bow the knee. Just worship me. The word worship is not simply the act of worshiping another person, but worship is also body position. It's prostrating yourself before another. It's humbling yourself before another. It's bowing the knee to another and the act of worshiping another. You know, in Psalms chapter 2, it's talking about the son that the king has given or established his son upon Zion. And this son is the king. And this kingly son, which is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, is given the nations as his heritage. If you understand Psalms chapter 2, Psalms chapter 2 is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And if you understand what the devil is doing, the devil is doing a counterfeit offer to Jesus. A counterfeit offer to Jesus. So what's going on here? What's truly going on here in this second temptation? The devil has painted a picture to Jesus that the world, all these nations, all this power and glory and prestige and fame, Jesus, they will happily accept you as king apart from the cross apart from pain of the cross, apart from suffering from the cross. You can be the king established on earth without a cross, Jesus. All you have to do is bow the knee. Bow the knee. But we understand the ramifications of that, do we not? No pain of the cross means no sacrifice, perfect sacrifice. No sacrifice means no atonement where our sins are covered by the blood of the perfect one. The wrath of God is satisfied or assuaged, if you like old language. And no atonement means no forgiveness by God. No forgiveness by God means no salvation. That's what's at stake. Luke chapter 4, verse 8, Jesus responds, and he says this to the devil, It is written, Again, start thinking Old Testament. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6, 13. Deuteronomy 6, 13. And it says this, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. What's happening in that context? Context is this. God has promised to give this land to Israel, promised to the fathers. Again, obey what God has commanded you. And then we see in verse 4, the Shema, or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Biblical Christianity, by the way, is monotheistic, one God. Bible-believing Christians believe in one God, not multiple gods. If you believe in multiple gods, you are not a Christian. You are not a Christian, and you yourself can be a God in your own eyes. Be careful. Be careful. But there's one God, and what is Jesus saying? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. And then we jump into the verse that Jesus is quoting. What is Jesus actually saying? Jesus is saying there is one God and this one God deserves to be worshipped. I am not worshipping you, devil. I am not worshipping you. 
There is one God. He is holy. He deserves to be worshipped in reverence. So Jesus doesn't compromise. Jesus doesn't give in to sin. And we, as God's people, say again, all glory to Jesus. Because if he sins, there is no salvation or hope or forgiveness for us at all. So we are saved because Jesus is our sinless and perfect Savior. He was obedient to the Father's will. Have you ever been tempted, ever been tempted to take the easy way in life? You've been given two options, the proverbial fork in the road. Either I can go right or I can go left. The right way is normally a difficult way. It requires a lot of time, sacrifice, energy, commitment, discipline. But the easy way is normally easy. It doesn't require much from me. And I can somehow, hopefully, get to the same end goal. Are we called to take the easy way in life? Are we called to avoid all the troubles and pains of this world? I want to remind us in 2 Timothy 3.12, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That is a promise from the Lord. So when you hear these TV evangelists who say, God loves you so much, you don't deserve any less. You don't deserve less than a mansion and a Mercedes Benz and a million dollars and perfect health and the perfect wife and perfect kids and perfect family and the American dream of a retirement system. Those are shysters. Because the word of God says, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That's a promise from God to you. When you stand before people and say, I am a follower of Jesus. He is my savior and he has bled and died for me and there is no other king. Trouble's coming down the pipeline. It's just a matter of time. And when that happens and you're persecuted for Christ, God will sustain you in his hands. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. He will carry you on eagle's wings. He will renew your strength. He will carry you all the way home. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is not our home. God chose you. Motivated by love, he gave you his son. And then he saved you. He showed you the wickedness of your sin and you hated it. And you turned to Christ and you say, he is king. There is no other king but Jesus. And my life is committed to following him and the word of God. And when the world bears down on you and the world is heavy and you think that you're losing everything, even if you lose everything, you have everything in Jesus. He loves you. He loves you. I wish I could get that message across to your mind and your heart. Three weeks ago, I was in a funeral at South Carolina. And you know what? We live in a world that what should happen is this is that parents who are old should, bury, should be buried by their children who are young. But you know what? I attended a funeral where this 32-year-old woman, single, never been married, no kids, she was diagnosed with lung cancer last November. She dies three weeks ago. I'm at her funeral. She dies from diagnosis to death. was less than nine months. And one of the hardest pains I've ever seen in my life is when a parent has to bury their own child. Has to bury their own child. It's because of sin. We all have an appointment with God. And yet, in God's kindness, he gives you Jesus. If you lose everything in this world, you have everything in Christ. Don't focus on taking the easy way in life. 
Honor Christ with your life. Don't waste your life. Kids, get off social media. Live for Jesus. Parents, parent your children in the name of Christ and love them and teach them the word of God and teach them the gospel. What are you going to do when God calls you home and say, give an account for your life, dear Christian? You're going to say, well, I, Lord, I was just too busy and I got too many things going on. and That's not going to work. Don't focus on the easy way. Focus on the right way. Honor Christ in all your decisions. Even if that decision brings great difficulty upon your life. And our Jesus, when he was tempted to sin, he did not sin, he didn't compromise. And we say again, all glory to Christ, all glory to Jesus. He obeyed perfectly. Which leads to our third temptation of Jesus in verse 9. Read with me. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, okay, start thinking Old Testament. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Do you see what the devil is doing? By this time, the devil has tempted Jesus not once but twice. He's tempted him to take a stone and turn it into bread and eat because he's hungry. But obviously that didn't work. The devil tempted Jesus, just bow the knee and all these worlds and kingdoms and the honor of these kingdoms will be yours. And Jesus says no. But now what the devil is doing is this. He's actually taking the word of God and using it for his sinful goal. And the amazing thing is he actually quotes the Bible right. He uses all the right words in the entire verse. The devil tempts Jesus with suicide. That's, what, that's what's happening here. The devil's crafty. He's a liar. And he knows how to use the Bible to tempt Jesus. And so the devil takes Jesus up to the top of this Jerusalem temple. This is the southeast corner. If you've ever seen a map of the temple, it's the southeast corner of the temple of the portico. And then when you look from that temple height all the way down, it's a very long distance. The Jewish historian Josephus says it is immense from the top of this point down to the valley. And what's the point? The point is this. If anybody jumps off this point, nobody can survive. That's what's implied. No one can survive a 450-foot jump. And so what is the devil saying? The devil is saying, you know, God made a promise in the Old Testament. Let's test God. Let's test him and see if he's faithful to his word and faithful to his people. And in that promise, God has angels. And the, these angels, if you jump, they're going to catch you and bring you up. And you'll be fine. So the devil's testing God by testing his promise. And so the devil quotes Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verse 11. And it says this, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And in this context of Psalm 91, the, the setting is this. There's a battle. There's a war that's ensuing. And God is the one who's portrayed as the one who loves his people. He cares for his people. He's compassionate for his people. That he is the refuge and protection of his people. That's the idea there in Psalm 91. That they, as God's people, are to trust the Lord. That God is the refuge of his people. And God does work through angels. Angels are real. And God works through his angels. And so the idea is God always works through his angels. 
So he's, there's presumption there. Therefore, the devil's quoting this text accurately, even biblically, even faithfully. But what the devil is doing is he rips it out of its context to create a new meaning and trying to tempt Jesus to sin. Well, we know that there are people in the world today who will literally take God's word and twist it out of its original context to accomplish their own sinful goals and desires. You know, I talked to one of the brothers here recently, and I said, brother, how do you read your Bible? He said, well, I read a specific verse or a couple of verses. And uh, I said, is that all you do? And he said, well, I'll read verses before a particular verse and verses after a particular verse. I said, oh, that's a, that's a good habit. Keep it up. He couldn't articulate it at the time, but what he's doing is he's reading it in context. You know, you can make the Bible say any, anything you want it to say. All you got to do is just take a certain word or a certain sentence and rip it out of its original context and twist it and give it a new meaning. But Bible believers who actually believe in the Bible, they're going to read the whole context because the context determines the meaning. And when you do that, that's the safe ground for you as Bible students, as Bible believers. That's the safe ground. In Luke 4, verse 12, Jesus answers the devil, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So, the devil is testing God's promise, and Jesus says, you're not supposed to do that. You're not to put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, God's faithfulness to God's people is a given, is a constant. God's faithfulness to his people never changes. It's take it to the bank. God is faithful. And so because God is faithful and it's a given, you should never, ever test God's faithfulness. Don't test him. Biblical faith, please hear this, dear brother and sister in Christ. Biblical faith is knowing God's word and obeying God's word. Biblical faith is knowing God's word and obeying God's word. See, it, we have many people running, a, running across Las Vegas and across America saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I believe in God. And they know little bits of the verse here and little bits of the verse here and little bits of the verse here. And they're quick to recite, but they never connect the dots. And they always live lies many times. I shouldn't say always. But many times they live lives that are contrary to their profession. But biblical faith is knowing God's word, believing God's word, and obeying God's word. You can't disconnect the two. Presumption, on the other hand, is not knowing God's word and hoping for the best. Presumption is not knowing God's word and hoping for the best. And so what we do many times in America is that, well, I don't really know what the Bible says about this particular situation. So in my heart, this is what I think. You know, every time I hear that language, in my heart, this is what I think. I get very nauseous. You know, my lunch starts to gurgle in my stomach and starts to come up and up. And eventually I want to vomit. That's the last thing we should be saying as Christians. The Bible's very clear in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The last thing you want to do is trust your own heart. Trust your own thoughts. Trust your own feelings and intuitions. That's called pragmatism. If we're not careful, we're actually Christian mysticists. Because we're going by feelings and emotion rather than the solid word of God. So there's a great difference between biblical faith and presumption. There's a massive difference. I'm not talking about how someone gets saved. I'm not talking about how someone goes from a non-Christian to a Christian or a non-believer to a believer. I'm not talking about that. The only way that a person goes from non-Christian to Christian is they turn away from their sins that God knows about and they trust in the only Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it. It's not money. It's not education. It's not good works, good deeds. It's not traditions of the church. It's not your popularity or your fame. It's not your family or your spouse. 
It's turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus. That's it. Right? That's how someone becomes a Christian. But when somebody is a Christian, this is what we're called to do. This is how we are to structure our life. This is how we are to live and obey God and bring glory to his great name. So I'm not talking about how someone becomes a Christian. I'm talking about those who are already Christians. The safe ground, brothers and sisters, the safe ground in life, in the Christian life, is always knowing God's word and obeying God's word. That's the safe ground. That's the safe ground. Because when we think about this situation of Jesus, the second Adam, being tempted three times, we have to ask ourselves, did God say, kill yourself, Jesus, by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem? Did God say that? We have to ask, did God say, Jesus, establish your kingly rule upon earth by avoiding the cross and worshiping the devil? We have to say and ask, did God say, turn this stone into bread because you're hungry and you're in the desert? The answer to all of those questions is no. So what's the point, Pastor Ola? This is the point is that the safe ground is always what's revealed in the Word of God. When God speaks in His Word, we speak. When God is silent in His Word, we are silent. So, God never said to Jesus, go ahead and do whatever you want to do. No. God God gave Christ a mission to be the sinless, perfect, obedient Savior for his people. But the devil is crafty. He's shrewd. He's a professional liar. He says to Eve, the devil says to Eve, did God really say? You see what the devil's doing, right? Trying to cast doubt in the mind of Eve. Did God really say? God didn't really say that, did he? And so she sinned, and then Adam sinned. And when he sinned, he plunged the entire human race into wickedness and sin and depravity. The entirety of the human race is guilty of breaking God's law. The reason why we think we're good people is we compare ourselves to the next human being. But if you compare yourself to God's holy law, you will realize quickly that you're not a good person. You are not a good person. You've sinned against God in word and thought and deed. We may say, we may walk out of this building today and say, we have clean hands and a pure heart, and we raise these clean hands and a pure heart to the Lord. And then we walk out, and I promise you, by the time you lay your head on your pillow tonight, you have sinned against God multiple times in word and thought and deed. Welcome to the human race. But the question for you now is, do you ever force God to act on your behalf so you can receive a perceived blessing God doesn't give you what you want right now so you say I'm gonna test the Lord I'm gonna go ahead and step out in faith and make a terrible decision and pray that it's good and if it's not good God will bail me out Are you testing God? Are you testing God with your life? Don't do that. This happens on every single level of life. Let's take, for example, relationships. We've seen it many times in our church family. A sweet Christian lady, sister, is with a handsome young man, but he doesn't know God from a goat. Or vice versa. And we ask them, why are you with this person who doesn't know Jesus? Well, I love him. I love him. Look at his beautiful blue-green eyes. Look at the way he dresses. Look at the way he talks. Look at his job and his education. Look what family he comes from. Does he know Jesus? No. 
I feel like you, Pastor Corey, about what you preached earlier in the first hour. If you marry someone simply on external, they will fail you miserably because they don't have your best interests at heart. Ladies, if you find a man that loves Jesus more than you, you better grab him. And men, if you find a woman that loves Jesus more than you, you better put a ring on her finger sooner, sooner than later. Obviously, talk to your pastors first before you jump into that. <laughs> I could already see the emails and the texts coming in tomorrow morning. But if you're in a bad relationship, that's your fault. You should know better. Do not be unequally yoked, the Bible says. What does light have to do with darkness? What does Christ have to do with Belial? You are coming from two different worlds with two different thoughts and two different desires. You, as a Christian, have the living God. The one that is not a Christian is dead in their sin and they serve the devil. That's John chapter 8. You are from two different worlds. Why live in that? Do you presume on God's faithfulness to pull you out of every bad decision? Why do you test God? Why do you presume? Why do you use Christian pragmatism and Christian mysticism? Live by the revealed word of God. Don't test God with your illogical disobedience. The safe ground is always, what does God's word actually say, and will I obey it? And when you do, that's the safe ground. A Christian sister said this one time, about obedience, quote, when we are called to sacrifice, it's not always easy to put others first. That's true. Especially when tired and feeling our worst. It's not always easy to do the Father's will. It wasn't so easy to climb Calvary's hill. She's talking about Jesus. But we as his children should learn to obey, not seeking our own, but seeking his way. It's not always easy to fight the good fight. But it is always good, and it's always right. It's always good, and it's always right to obey the word of God. As Bible-believing Christians, it's always good and right to do that. If you love Jesus, then your life should have fruit where you love the word of God and love to submit to it and obey it. Don't live by your sinful emotions and your personal preferences or your, or your likes. Don't live by the world's standards. Live by God's word. And when we think of what Christ has done for us in accomplishing our great salvation, remember, our salvation is not a nickel's worth. It costs the very life and blood of the perfect Son of God on your behalf. A life for a life, a death for a death. He lived the perfect life that you should and we should have lived, but we can never do it. God gave us Christ. Back to that funeral several weeks ago, I see the parents bury their child. One of the most heart-wrenching things I've ever seen in my life. But at the end, there was great joy. Why? Because she loved Jesus. She gave her life to Jesus. She turned from her sins. She loved Jesus. She trusted in Jesus. She put her full faith and confidence in Jesus. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. See, as Christians, we have this bittersweet moment when a dear brother and sister in Christ dies. But one of the worst funerals I've ever attended in my life is when non-believers, non-Christians die and they're trying to preach this wicked, sinful person into heaven. It's a sad experience. Once appointed to die, then the judgment. So we should be grateful and humbled for what God has done for us in Christ. If Christ sinned at any single point, you and I would not be in this room today. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. And so what should we be thinking about? We should be thinking about this, that the first Adam 
the Son of God, created by God, was placed in a perfect, beautiful paradise called the Garden of Eden. He was supposed to obey God, and what does he do? He sins against his own creator. And then we have the second Adam, Jesus. He's not placed in the Garden of Eden. He's placed in the desert. We live in a desert. We know how dry and dead a desert looks. And he is tempted. He is hungry. And yet he does not sin. Jesus is not simply the second Adam. He's the greater Adam. He is the perfect son of God. When we think of Israel, Israel was led out by a mighty hand out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. God provided food, clothing. Man, can you think about sandals lasting for 40 years? We have Nikes that don't even last for two years. But yet God provided chanclas, chinilas, slippers, whatever you want to call them, right? And it lasted for 40 years. And praise God for that. Yet these people grumbled against God, never satisfied with food, never satisfied with God had blessed them with. They sinned against God greatly. And then we have Jesus, who's in the desert, and he never complains. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Son of God. So how is this possible? How can Jesus do this? The Bible's very clear that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's fully God and fully man. And when Jesus was tempted, he wasn't tempted as fully God. Because God doesn't need food. He's tempted as a real man. By a real devil. And our salvation is at stake. And we have Jesus who is fully God and fully man, the God-man, the one who is the incarnate one, God who became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And because he's sinless, that means he's qualified to stand in your place and take God's wrath upon himself on your behalf. And we should praise God for that. He's qualified. He's the sinless, perfect Savior. Don't think for one moment, don't think for one moment that your salvation is an accident. If we read the text, we see that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, verse 1, and led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. We see God's design. We see God's sovereignty. We see God's providence. We see God's plan for salvation. You need a substitute. I need a substitute. And he needs to be the perfect one because the first Adam failed miserably. So we praise God and what he has done in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has merited your salvation. Jesus has earned your salvation. And that salvation is given to the one who turns from their sin and places their full faith in Jesus Christ. Christ has earned your salvation by his perfect obedience. Let me remind you of Psalm chapter 119, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. Jesus did that perfectly for you and for me. Amen? All glory to Jesus. So sermon in a sentence. Biblical Christians, I'm using this language specifically and intentionally. Biblical Christians show their gratefulness to God for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ alone by holding to his word through personal obedience. God saved you. He calls you to obey. Now obey. And if you have not obeyed, ask God to forgive you in Christ all over again. His mercies are fresh and new each and every day. The Lord loves you with a great love and he's given you his son. Remember that, dear Christian. Remember that as we walk out these doors and we get beat up by the world for another week. Remember what the Lord has done for you and live for him all the days of your life. All glory to Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you. We thank you, thank you, thank you that you love us with a great love. Lord, we didn't love you first, but you loved us and gave us your one and only son, the one who lived and died for us. And Lord, we admit that we have sinned against you in word and thought and deed. Lord, forgive us. We are sorry. Thank you for being faithful to your word. And forgive us, Lord, when we have tested you. Lord, draw us close to you. Help us to live for you and, if need be, die for you. For you alone are worthy. In Christ we pray. Amen.